Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's full in here considering men's retreat this weekend. I think all the men who are at retreat normally go to first service. That's where we felt the gaps. But uh, uh, this morning, a whole bunch of our, our men from Grace Lamarada and Grace Fullerton are up at Oak Glen uh, finishing up a weekend retreat. Hopefully some of them will be back at Lord's Supper tonight to hear a little bit about how the Lord used that retreat. Uh, you know what the difference between uh, Sunday morning here when men's retreat is happening and Sunday morning when women's retreat is happening? You mainly see it in the kids' hair. In, in our children's ministry. I don't know if you know that this morning, they, all the kids looked exactly the same, clean, hair done. But on uh, women's retreat weekend is the weekend where all, yeah, all the kids, all the girls' hair is just straight down, no ponytails or pigtails or anything. Is that right? Lily May just goes natural. Um, I'm Kenny. I'm one of the... She doesn't like pigtails anyway, so... Um, well, I'm Kenny. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fullerton, and uh, it's really, really good to be back. Uh, last Sunday, we were actually back from China. Uh, we had been there, if you don't know, for two and a half weeks, uh, adopting uh, again. So we adopted our third, a little boy who's two, uh, that we named Elijah, and he's doing really well uh, already, really amazingly bonding with our, our family and us to him. And uh, it's just a joy in, in many ways. Our trip, uh, for all its challenges, couldn't have gone more smoothly. So I know a lot of you were praying for us by name and, and following things were happening on Facebook for us. And we are really grateful for that. I know God answered a lot of those prayers. So hopefully uh, uh, you'll be able to meet him sometime. He was at first service uh, this morning making noise in the first, uh, in the, the back row. So, uh, but I'm back. The reason we weren't here last Sunday was uh, I was preaching at La Mirada and I said, Betsy, you can't go to Grace Fullerton with Elijah and I can't go. So I made her stick with me at, at uh, La Mirada. So anyway, she was here as well. Um, but let me piggyback on something we just sang and uh, a prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3 that's been on my mind uh, related to this message. Uh, the line we just sang, again, is that, uh, that Christ's love shines at Calvary, that uh, Calvary is one of the places that we can see Christ's love for us demonstrated uh, visibly. Um, one of the things that Paul said he prayed for the Christians in Ephesus, and I get the feeling this is the kind of thing he prayed for Christians very frequently in other churches as well, uh, is in Ephesians 3. Let me read his prayer or what he said he prayed and then explain how I'm hoping that the Lord would answer this prayer for us through this passage this morning. So here's what he said he prayed. He said, uh, I pray that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that the result would be Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, that's Christ's love for you, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. Think about that for a minute. That's what Paul is saying. I want Christians to be people who not just on Sunday for a couple of hours, but who day to day, week to week, are people who are filled with the fullness of God. And I'll confess to you, I do not frequently, would, would, you, would I say, right now I feel filled with all the fullness of God. 
Even this morning, do you feel this morning filled with all the fullness of God? Maybe you do a little bit more as we just finished singing um, and, and the Spirit's using these songs and, and the scripture that we were reading. But if you're honest, uh, like me, I think you would say often we struggle to feel filled with the fullness of God, that Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith. This morning, if you're not filled with the fullness of God, what are you filled with? Or maybe this last week, as you reflect back on the week, um, through your work week, through your, your uh, work at home, um, what were you filled with? Are you filled with anxiousness? Worry? Was this last week or this season of your life, is it filled with ambition and accomplishment and vocation that by and large, that's what fills you? Are you filled with anger or resentment or bitterness over something in your life or envy and discontentment filled with apathy and boredom, filled with distraction, filled with stress and fatigue like Bilbo when he was old who said, I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. Probably from week to week, we can identify with a lot of those. Our, our life can feel more filled with stuff like that. But Paul wants for us, God wants for us to increasingly know a life where our, our inner being is filled with a fullness of God. And connect the dots. Colossians 1 said, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Right? And here Paul says, you know what I want? I want that Christ in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I want him to dwell in your hearts through faith. That's how the fullness of God comes to fill us, right? Christ, who's the fullness of God dwelling in our hearts by faith. And notice how Paul says this happens. You see it in what he asks God to do. He says, I pray that God would give you strength to comprehend along with all the saints the unfathomable love of Christ for you. The love of Christ is something wider, taller, longer than we can wrap our minds around, but we can know it increasingly. We can get an enlarged or a more accurate understanding of the love of Christ toward us. And Paul says a fruit of that is being filled in our inner being with a, a sense of the fullness of God. If that's something that you want, that's what I wanna pray God would do. He would enlarge our knowledge of the love of Christ through this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane and that we would leave here a little bit more filled with his fullness. This passage absolutely can enlarge our knowledge of Christ. Another line we sang uh, this morning had the line, uh, my weary load was borne by him. It says, my righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death and my weary load was borne by him. If, you're, if you've trusted Christ, your weary load, all of your sin, all of the guilt of your sin, all the shame that your sin, you should feel for your sin, was borne by Christ in one man, all of yours. And for millions and millions of sinners who have trusted in Christ, one man, Jesus, bore the heavy load of millions in himself, on the cross, do we have any idea how excruciating it was for Jesus to bear our weary load? 
That's one of the things that this little scene that Mark allows us a glimpse into helps us understand a little more deeply what it felt like for Jesus, God's son, to bear your weary load. It was agonizing. Three things I want us to see from this scene uh, about Jesus. Number one, it's his terror here in Gethsemane. We're going to see Jesus terrified. That's a Jesus that we haven't seen in the Gospels. Jesus is terrified. Second, we see Jesus tempted in Gethsemane. We've seen Jesus tempted before in the Gospels, but I don't think like this. I don't think Jesus was ever tempted uh, more severely than this moment that we, we get to see here. And lastly, though, we get to see Jesus triumph here in Gethsemane. The, the Jesus that leaves this scene, I don't think is the same Jesus that, that we see in the, in the middle of this scene. He leaves differently uh, than he comes. So let me pray, and then we're going to read that and walk through those points. Um, let me pray just like what, what, what Paul did. Uh, Father, would you strengthen us this morning with power through your spirit? We're asking your spirit to, to do something that we just can't manufacture, that your spirit's going to help us see something that shines here in this text. I pray that you would root us and ground us in your love more deeply. We ask that you'd give us strength to comprehend something that lies beyond our complete comprehension. And I pray you'd send us out today filled a little more with your fullness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark 14, let's look at verse 32. What had just happened was Jesus had had one last Passover meal with his, uh, his disciples. If you were here last week, Gerald uh, preached and, 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 and pointed out that, that Jesus at a point in this very familiar meal to the disciples of Passover with all these symbols that reminded them of God's delivering of them out of the hands of Egypt uh, with, the, with God's mighty hand and bringing them out to be his precious redeemed people in a new place. And this meal, he went off script. And at a point, Jesus actually takes the cup and the bread and he says, I want you to continue to celebrate this together. But from now on, I want it to remind you that I'm about to lay down my body and blood for you. I'm about to pour myself out as a spotless lamb to make a new covenant between people and God, a better covenant. And he'd instituted this Lord's Supper that tonight we're going to celebrate. Please come back uh, for it here uh, if you, or you're not busy. And then uh, they'd sung a hymn, it says, and they left the meal and they went out into the night uh, and they walked out to the Mount of Olives. And along the way, Jesus warned them and said, tonight, the shepherd is going to be struck. That's me, Jesus, he says. And you all, the sheep, are going to scatter. It is written. And there was some pretty bold talk, right? Peter, the first one to always put his foot in his mouth. He says, well, they might all fall away. They all might all scatter. I mean, you know them, but not me. And Jesus says, no, actually you, Peter, before the sun comes up, three times you're going to deny me. Three times. And he says emphatically, I would die before I deny you. They'd have to kill me. I won't deny you. And this is where we pick up the scene. They get to the spot that uh, Jesus is leading them to at the Mount of Olives, and it's called Gethsemane. It's a place that was familiar to them. We'll see. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed if it were possible that this hour might pass from me. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they didn't know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. First thing, Jesus' terror in Gethsemane. Pardon my sniffling. My cold is still not gone from coming home from China. So here he is at the brink of the cross. This is the, the thing that Jesus has predicted and, and announced to his disciples straightforwardly many times that he's marched toward. I'm setting my face to Jerusalem. The son of God is gonna give his life as a ransom for many. He had just, again, talked about it at the, the meal that they had just left and, and given him this thing. But as they come to this place called Gethsemane, he, he says to his disciples, would you sit here while I pray? And then it says he takes Peter and James and John a little further with him. For whatever reason, Peter, James, and John seem to sort of be in this inner circle. Jesus brings them along from time to time uh, to have a particular glimpse into something. Like when he healed Jairus' daughter, he brought them up uh, with him to, to do that. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Most importantly, he takes Peter, James, and John and they get this glimpse that Jesus is not just a man, but his divine glory that leaves them speechless. And Moses is there and Elijah is there. And this voice from heaven it, it says, this is my beloved son again. And they're just awestruck. And here Jesus takes Peter, James, and John away, and they're going to see a very different side of Jesus. As glorious uh, and magnificent as that was, here is this sort of pathetic, sad, scary view of Jesus, their teacher, uh, in his humanity and his weakness. So he takes Peter and James and John and it says, uh, uh, going a little farther, or sorry, uh, it says, um, and uh, he took with them and began to be greatly distressed. So they're walking away from the 12 and I think Jesus is beginning to come undone here. Even let this down, his guard down in front of Peter, James and John and he becomes greatly distressed. It's a word that means shocked. Shock begins to overcome Jesus. Jesus. 
panic, fear. And it says he was troubled. It's a word that means overcome with horror, even in a physical sense. Have you ever seen something or learned about something that was so horrific that you felt sick to your stomach? I, mean, I, think, of, I, I think of 9-11. We just passed again just a couple of weeks ago, and I can still remember our house in Brea waking up early and watching the news and getting Betsy out of bed, and we watched as the second plane hit and the buildings are falling, and my, my mind just can't take in the, 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 how much tragedy is, is, is on this screen and just feeling this, this knot in my stomach of what is going on, right? This, whole, this, is, this is the kind of trouble. Jesus is, is on the brink of the cross, and, and he's, he's sick. He's troubled, and he says to Peter, James, and John, he confides in him. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. I don't think he means I just want to die. He's about to pray that the father, if there's any way, would, would save him from death. But I think he, he literally means I am so sorrowful, it's killing me. This is a grief that's just crushing and it's so crushing that here's the one time in the Gospels where he asks his disciples to minister to him. You see that? He says, this is how sorrowful I am. Would you just remain here and watch? I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pray, but I don't want to be alone. Would you just stay here with me? I can't do this alone. Would you watch? He asks for their support in this moment. Can you imagine what Peter, James, and John were, were thinking? What that would have been like? I mean, this is their rabbi. This is the one casting out demons and, and performing miracles and walking on water and calming a storm while they're terrified. And here he is. He's, he's coming unglued. Who is this Jesus? Many have pointed out that Christians throughout history have faced uh, violent martyred, martyr, martyring, martyrs' deaths, that's the word, much more bravely than Jesus. Maybe you've read testimonies or biographies of, of Christians uh, who have been faced with this question. I mean, even just this week, apparently, there were some who were asked, are you a Christian? And, and, and they were shot. Throughout history, there are martyrs who have bravely in the face of that maintained their confession of, of faith in Christ and, and endured sword and all kinds of terrible things. Stephen in Acts 8, the very first example that we get in the Bible, faces his, they, they all lift stones to stone him and, he, and he's, he's sort of illuminated with glory like from heaven and he says, Father, forgive them and, 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 and receive my spirit and he, he dies very bravely. An early church father named Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. That's how early he was. Um, he was threatened uh, with being burned at the stake if he didn't recant. And here was his response. He didn't recant. He said, for 80 and six years have I been his servant and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. In the 1500s, uh, three men in Oxford were burned at the stake. Two of them first were named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Betsy and I got to stand in this little spot of cobbled bricks uh, in Oxford on a street that marks the very spot where they were 
tied to a stake and they were burned alive. Again, for the sake of Christ and the, and the true meaning of the gospel and, and, and for holding that, that the Lord's, of, of what the Lord's Supper uh, represents. And facing this, Hugh Latimer turns to Nicholas Ridley and he says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. This, this ability facing this horrifically painful death to say, I, I am confident that the Lord is gonna use our sufferings to further the kingdom of God in this world. So let's do it, right? I was thinking a couple of weeks ago of even the, the, the 21 Coptic Christians, those men that we all saw the image, right? Online of them lined up on their knees on a beach as ISIS soldiers with, with you know, head, head masks over are about to cut their heads off and they're whispering the name of Jesus and entrusting their souls to Jesus. And here's Jesus facing the cross and he's coming apart. Why? Well, I think it's because what he's about to face, no other Christians faced. It's categorically different. Jesus Terror here is a whole different terror. It's terror at something that not one of those Christians ever had to face. And we see it in what he prays. His prayer has to do with the hour passing from him and the cup, this cup. This cup is what terrifies Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the imagery of the cup, drinking the cup means bearing God's wrath for judgment, just judgment toward your human sin. It means a holy God, standing before a holy God as a guilty sinner and God acting in just wrath toward you, pouring that out. Drinking the cup is to receive God's wrath. And throughout the Old Testament, when we see glimpses of God in part um, acting in judgment against sin, it usually involves these two things, being driven out of his presence and his blessing and delivered over to enemies. So think Adam and Eve in the garden break this covenant with God to not eat from this tree. And, and part of the consequence is being driven out from this perfect place of blessing and paradise into a world of toil that works against them and suffering um, and, and driven out. And then throughout Israel's history, whenever they would break covenant, there'd be a point where God would say, that's it. Um, I'm, I'm gonna deliver you over to your enemies. I'm gonna remove my hand of protection and provision and blessing. And in part, they would drink the cup but all the way along, those are shadows. That's not the full cup of God. There's a line, I forgot the reference, but in the Psalms, it says that God is a God who feels indignation every day. Indignation means just holy, righteous anger. Not only is God a God of joy and, and love and peace, but simultaneously, as he looks at this world filled with sin and violence and destruction, he feels indignation every day since Adam and Eve sinned. That's been building. And God in his patience has withheld that anger in large measure. And one day, he is gonna pour that cup out. Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men. All sin that deserves the cup will receive the cup in the end. 
When we come to the New Testament, I think the most sobering to me passage that describes uh, the, the, the final result of God pouring out the cup uh, on sinners isn't in all the metaphors Jesus uses when he teaches about hell as scary as those are. All these metaphors of darkness and, and fire and, and suffering and decay and gnashing of teeth and all that is describing a reality that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 1. Let me read it to you. Actually, it's on the screen. He says, this will be what it's like for you if you were to endure the cup of God's wrath uh, in the end. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Away from the presence of the Lord. The most, uh, the, 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 the most wrathful thing God can do toward you is completely remove his presence from you forever. Like C.S. Lewis said, it's to say to you, sinner, okay, your will be done. If you don't want anything to do with me, then I will remove my presence for you forever. The most avowed uh, atheist on earth right now who denies the existence of God enjoys thousands of examples every day of God's presence and his grace through that presence in the oxygen that they breathe and the blood providing nutrients to their body and the food that they eat and beauty in the world that brings joy to the soul and pleasure and human relationships and on and on. All these things only exist because God is present in his and sustaining his creation, like Colossians 1 says, right? He's upholding it all by the word of his power. His presence is here. And there's going to be, come a time when God says, I will remove my presence and the glory of my might from you. This is what Jesus is terrified by because God the Father is about to treat God the Son like this. Let's think about this. Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for eternity past, never needed anything more than what they found in themselves in perfect love and communion and a relationship. And God the Son had only ever for eternity past experienced the adoration and the pleasure of his Father toward him. Adored. Psalm 1611 says, um, in your presence, God, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's all Jesus had ever known. So when he's baptized and, and, God, and Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is on the brink of the cross and he is, a, he is about to go from being his beloved son in whom he's well pleased to becoming sin for us. God made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The holy one of God is about to become the defiled one of God. And God is gonna treat that defiled one, as he deserves, bearing all of the sin of all these millions, the Father is going to treat him that way. And Jesus is going to experience the contempt of his Father, become abhorrent to him. And then God would deliver him over to his enemies, who would do horrible things to him on the cross, but the most painful thing Jesus was facing on the cross was not what all these men were going to do to him, but what the father was not going to do for him. 
was not going to vindicate him, was not going to step in, was not going to call this off. He was going to let it happen because in that moment at the cross, Jesus is bearing our sin. I missed it, the reading service a few weeks ago, but I know because Jesse and I planned it together. Uh, you introduced a song called Jerusalem. It has this line in it about Jesus shielding sinners with his blood. That's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to become a, a shield between God's wrath and us. And he's terrified. There's a poem by a man named George Herbert, an old poem. It's a long poem too. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but go look it up online. It's called The Sacrifice. Beautiful poem. And in it, he takes 64 little four-line stanzas to imagine Jesus recounting each and every grief that he suffered and endured on the way up to the cross and at the cross. And with each little stanza, each grief, the stanza ends with this question, was ever grief like mine? It starts uh, like this. Oh, all ye who pass by, whose eyes and mind to worldly things are sharp, but to me, blind. To me, who took eyes that I might you find, was ever grief like mine? Speaking of the grief of being rejected by his own people, he says, without me, each one who doth now me brave, in other words, each one who acts so bravely right now, arresting me and trying me, had to this day been an Egyptian slave. They used that power against me, which I gave. Was ever grief like mine? Speaking of Judas, he says, my own apostle, who the bag did bear, though he had all I had, did not forbear to sell me also and to put me there. Was ever grief like mine? And it goes on and on. Each verse, the mocking and the spitting and the torture and the taunting, the crown of thorns, the soldiers, the Sanhedrin, and every verse was ever grief like mine, was ever grief like mine until it gets to this verse and, and George Herbert changes the pattern. And it's the verse that describes Jesus' anguish at being abandoned and treated as a sinner by his heavenly father. Listen to the verse. He says, but oh my God, my God, why leavest thou me? The son in whom thou dost delight to be. My God, my God. He doesn't finish the line. And then he says emphatically, never was grief like mine. It's not a question anymore for George Herbert in this verse. I think he's right. I love that blank right there. It's brilliant. Not only does it mimic the silence that Jesus endured on the cross, and it allows us to fill in the line. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Never was grief like his. That's why countless Christian martyrs can die so bravely because they never had to face the cup. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's because Jesus drank the cup that they can die so boldly because to die is gain. To enter into the presence of their savior. Of course you can die bravely if someone else has drank the cup for you, and that's what Jesus is facing, and that's why he's terrified. My question for us is, first question is, are we appropriately terrified by the prospect of facing the wrath of God in our sin, ourself? Jesus considered it, and his knees buckled. And he pleaded with the Father if there was any other way to remove it. 
That's called holy fear. And, if, and until anyone comes to have a holy fear, an understanding, an apprehension that before God, standing before God, woe is me. Until you have that, you will not do the very thing that allows Jesus to drink the cup in your place. The Bible is very clear. Two people can drink that cup. You can or Jesus can. Jesus has already drunk it and he offers to us, if you call on my name, you can be saved. That's what Romans 10, 13 says. But you will not call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You will not cry for help until you understand I need help. Fleeing the wrath of God, running to the grace of God. The very God of wrath is the one who also has made this provision in his grace. And you can have his wrath or you can have his grace. And this morning, I don't want to leave without asking you, are you sure that you've turned to his grace and asked for his grace? Do you understand the wrath? Hebrews 10, 13, 31 says, it's a terrible thing, a fearful thing um, to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you understand that? If you do, this morning, even for the first time, all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. You can pray however you want to pray, with whatever words you want to express to God. God, I understand. I see that. I tremble to think of standing before you in my sin. I know all my sin, and you do too. God, would you forgive me in Jesus' name? Lord, would you allow the cup that Jesus drank to pay in full my guilt and forgive my sin. God says he will do that and he, is, he will send his Holy Spirit to indwell you and transform you from the inside out. Please do that. Do that and then come back and celebrate Lord's Supper tonight and the cup we now get to drink because he drank this cup. So that's first. Jesus faced terror in Gethsemane and the terror was the cup that he was about to drink. Number two, which the terror led to was this, his temptation at Gethsemane. Here at the brink of the cross, he's tempted. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell on the ground. That's begging posture. That's what we do when we beg. You fall on the ground before someone. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Satan's tempting here. Doesn't mention Satan here, but Jesus is obviously clearly sorely tempted, severely tempted. And what struck me this time, being in this passage a few weeks ago, was Satan's busy at work. When Jesus comes to earth in the Gospels, Satan's tempting all kinds of people, right? Herod, when Jesus is born, is filled with this jealousy and, and tries to snuff out all the baby boys born in Bethlehem to try to kill uh, Jesus uh, as, as an infant. Satan enters into Judas's heart for Judas to, to betray his, his, his Lord, his rabbi over to the authorities. His, Satan has is, is got a grip on the heart of all these leaders who are conspiring and plotting to kill Jesus. So Satan's tempting all sorts of people to send Jesus to the cross. But all the way along, Jesus, I think, temptation from Satan is avoid the cross, avoid the cross, avoid the cross. That's the temptation that Jesus experiences. Think the wilderness early on in the gospel where Jesus is led out in the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. In some way, all those temptations are, are, are related to avoiding suffering. Turn these stones into bread. Don't go hungry. You can just like that. Don't suffer. 
Use your power to avoid suffering. He says, throw yourself from the temple. Angels will protect you. And certainly you would draw a crowd if, with that display. Clearly, the, the father does not want any harm to come to you. So to show it, do it that way. Or fall down and worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, he says. Allegiance to the father is going to end poorly for you, Jesus. Just fall down and worship me. Skip all that. Peter learns that Jesus is going to the cross and he says, never, Lord. May that never happen to you. And what does he say? Those are Satan's words, Peter. I recognize that temptation. That's Satan right there telling me to avoid that cross. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus understood it. And here in the garden, he is wrestling with this temptation. At this point, Mark clearly shows a contrast between Jesus in the face of his temptation and Peter and James and John in the face of their temptation, right? Because they're facing serious temptation, right? Jesus says, shepherd's gonna be struck and you are all gonna scatter. And they say, never, Lord. And, and, and Jesus knows and they're about to face temptation. So here's Jesus in the face of his temptation, praise in earnest, sweating bullets in the garden for two things, two requests. One, if it be possible, would you please remove this cup from me? And a prayer of both, I think, entrusting himself to God, but also a request, God, not what I will, but what you will. Three things I want to point out about Jesus' prayer. Number one, he doesn't just pray that for five seconds. He doesn't just pray it once. It's not a, just a two-sentence prayer. First time he comes back to the disciples and, and he, he wakes them up, he says, Peter, could you not stay awake for one hour? Can you imagine Jesus for an hour going back and forth between these, these things, pleading with the Lord, and then also saying, I, I, want, I want to do your will. This is the Jesus who said, my food is to do the Father's will. That's what I live for. And here he's saying, this is hard to swallow. Yet not what I will. Back and forth for an hour. Secondly, he does this three times. Look at verse 39. It says, after he, he comes and finds him sleeping, he goes away again and prays, saying the same words. So battling in this for an hour, he gets up, not my will, but yours. And he goes back, but then he comes back and he goes through it all again. He is still torn, still being tempted. And then in verse 40, it's implied, I think, that he's gone away a third time and, and, and poured his, his heart out in prayer again. And notice when he comes back, who he calls out in particular, Simon, are you asleep? Oh, wait, I said, third thing I want to say about Jesus' uh, prayer here is that he's fighting temptation here in his humanity. That's what we see in this, this grueling, agonizing, pleading and praying and pleading and praying with God is that he is fighting this in his humanity. This is no cakewalk. Well, I'm just God, so of course I'm going to do the right thing. No, Jesus is fully man and he is going to obey to the very end as a man so that his obedience can count in our place as human beings. And meanwhile, the disciples are the opposite picture. He comes back three times, they're sleeping. He says, Peter, you, Mr., even if they all fall away, I won't. Mr., I would die before I deny you. Even you, Peter, you're sleeping in light of this warning I've given you. And suddenly he turns and he begins to actually Again, minister to them. Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter, enter into temptation. He's battling temptation himself and now he's trying to help them 
actually battle the temptation that they're about to face, to scatter. He says, your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't sleep, pray, pray. You don't have to scatter, pray. Ask the Lord to help you that you might not um, enter into this temptation. And, and, and we're set up here to clearly see that as, the, as the, the narrative goes on, that Jesus watching and praying is connected to him laying down his life as a ransom for many and not avoiding or sidestepping the cross. And we are to conclude that the disciples' sleepy, drowsy weakness and inability, their willing spirit, but their weak flesh, failure to really pray culminates in them all scattering and Peter denying Jesus wins temptation the very same way that they fail uh, temptation is they fail to pray. They fall asleep three times. Let me ask, can you relate to disciples in here when it comes to temptation in your life? Jesus warns of temptation. I was reminded even this morning, driving over here in the early morning, I was thinking about Peter and how Jesus had warned him. And one warning that we get in Luke, but not in Mark, I think it's in Luke, he says to Peter, Peter, Satan demanded to have you to sift you like wheat. He said, Peter, you need to take this temptation seriously. You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to sift you like wheat. Don't picture little that thing that you powder sugar over your French toast with, sifter. Sifting like wheat is a violent process, right? Back, back then, here's all this wheat and they got to break off the non-edible part from the edible part. What do they do? They crush it. They roll giant millstones over it over and over and over. They throw it up into the air and let it fall down, throw it up into the air and crash down and all the chaff blows away and the kernel stays. And he's saying, that's what, Pete, what Satan wants to do to you right now and all the other, Peter. He's going to strike me and he is trying to sift you like wheat. He wants the end result be for you that your faith will fail. Satan wants to sift us like wheat. That is the, 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 the message in the New Testament to us, one of the warnings of Paul's letters, isn't it? Satan seeks to devour you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants the circumstances of your life to crush you in such a way that you finally, your faith just fails. And Jesus is saying every temptation is a point where that's the goal, is to try to get your faith to fail. Your, every temptation in a little way is saying, let's just walk toward the cup. Let's just move toward the cup. Let's go that direction rather than this direction. Now, the good news here, again, is that Jesus even plays a role in, 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 in the persevering faith of Peter. The next line he says to Peter, he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. They are gonna all scatter. Their faith is gonna fail, but not permanently. Jesus says, I've prayed for you. And they, and they, they, they all turn back. Well, Judas doesn't. So we should be both warned and comforted. God takes an active role in our persevering faith. Uh, but also Judas stands there as a warning uh, to not take that for granted. Watch and pray. Thank God at the end of the day, every time we fail, we can still return to the one who never failed, Jesus. Amen to that? He watched and prayed and he fought and he won in our place. But let's watch and pray. And last is Jesus' triumph in Gethsemane. This is, this is such the great news here. The triumph is that Jesus accepts the cup. It seems that he decisively here, when he gets up this third time, something's different. He comes back to them and he wakes them up and there's something uh, about him saying, rise, let us be going. Let's go meet those who are gonna take me to my death. Let's go meet them. 
Jesus has, has settled it. His face is set. Even though we see anguish in Jesus and, and suffering through, through the remaining chapters of the Gospels here, I don't think we see a divided or a torn Jesus anymore. I think he leaves this and this battle is in one. That's why I think Mel Gibson was brilliant in the way he portrayed this scene in The Passion of the Christ movie. Suddenly, he didn't go literal. He went theological. I don't know if you've seen that. If you haven't, I remember the first time I saw that scene, I was at a Harvest Crusade, Angel Stadium, before the film came out, and they showed just this scene from Gethsemane as a, as a teaser that this film was coming out. And in the scene, Jesus is praying, and it's dark, and it's foggy, and he's sweating. He's crying out in Aramaic to the Father, and the disciples are over there falling asleep, not troubled. Um, and, and Mel Gibson decides to put Satan in there Physically, visibly, Satan is standing over there whispering to Jesus. The whole time he's praying, Satan is whispering things like, uh, no one man can carry this burden. It's far too heavy. Saving their souls is too costly. And meanwhile, Jesus keeps praying, Father, remove the cup if it be possible, yet not my will, uh, but yours. And, and as this is happening, this snake slithers out from underneath the, Satan's robe and it, and it cruises over to Jesus and kind of wraps around Jesus' feet with its tongue flicking as Jesus is praying. And you realize, oh, this is Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And here it is, and it comes around, and he stands up from praying that last prayer. And he turns and he looks Satan in the eye, and he brings his, his foot down on the head of this serpent. And Angel Stadium, when that scene, it like closed. That was like the end of the thing. And the whole stadium just erupted in a roar of cheer. There was this sense of the triumph. Now, we all knew that Jesus wasn't going to crush Satan's head until he gave up his last breath on the cross and then was uh, resurrected three days later and, and death is uh, overthrown uh, and, and resurrection life is possible. But I think Mel Gibson got it. I think we get it that that moment right here seems to be a decisive moment. He has set his face and he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. And as we close, I want this to be the question we start off with. Do you recognize that this is a measure of the love of Christ for you? Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Joy was part of what led Jesus to, to yield his will to the Father and stand up and say, rise, let us be going. And a huge part of that joy was bringing many sons to glory. That's what Hebrews says. Jesus loves sinners, loves you. And it was the joy of you being redeemed and you not having to drink that cup that led him to say, I'll drink the cup. Does that fill you with a fullness of being loved in a way that you can't explain by God, the Father who sent his Son, and God the Son who went? We're going to close with this hymn, How Deep the Father's Love. Let me read this verse and, and pray, and let's stand and sing. It says, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. A father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory.
pray. Father God, thank you. We realize here, even though we didn't talk about it, that, that this was as agonizing for you as the son, to, for you to give your only son, your perfect beloved son, as a ransom for many. God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. We thank you that you went. Jesus, thank you for drinking the cup. We thank you for fighting temptation and obeying in our place to the very end. Thank you that we have a promise of an eternal future of pleasure at your right hand and joy filled with all your fullness. God, I pray that we would taste more of that fullness even this morning. I pray that this week, whatever is facing us as we leave uh, and enter into our week tomorrow, we would face filled with the fullness of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.